Okay, so Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything that they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you can have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we, we just read chap- well, a big chunk of chapter 17. We're only going to look at the transfiguration uh, tonight. Why don't we pray together and we'll ask for God's help as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your kindness and mercy to us in giving us the scriptures that we might learn about you. We thank you also for giving us your Holy Spirit that we might understand what is in scripture. Please be kind to us tonight. Help us see the glory and the supremacy of your son Jesus in this passage. Amen. Uh, Well, you've already seen the first slide of the PowerPoint, have you? So you probably know what I'm going to say. Uh, You might have noticed that certain comic book heroes have certain amazing powers, but they hide themselves in regular human life with regular human identities. So think of this one, uh, Spider-Man, he's got superhuman strength, he has the ability to climb walls, but in everyday life, his powers and his true abilities, they're hidden in the ordinary life of Peter Parker, well done. Uh, Think of this guy, 
the Hulk, has superhuman strength. He's pretty much indestructible. He's massive and green. But in everyday life, his powers and true abilities, they're hidden in the everyday ordinary life of Bruce Banner. Well done. Uh, And here's probably the easiest one. Batman. Uh, has amazing martial arts skills, has all these really cool engineered toys for fighting crime, has a deep gravelly voice, but is everyday, but you know, all those powers that they're hidden in the everyday life of? Mike Horgan, well done. (laughs) Now, all those superheroes, they've got amazing powers, but they live out an ordinary life. They all have sort of daily disguises. They kind of make it hard to work out Peter Parker is actually Spider-Man, Bruce Wayne is actually uh, Batman. They're kind of disguised in normal life. But there's actually one superhero, I think, that didn't put a lot of effort into his daily disguise. Who do you reckon the worst disguised superhero is? Superman? Did someone say it? Uh, Hasn't he got the worst disguise? It's the kind of disguise that makes it pretty easy to work out who his secret identity is. Uh, Here he is here. He's got the ability to fly. He's got superhuman strength. He's got the laser things that come out of his eyes. But in everyday life, his powers and his true abilities, they're hidden in the ordinary life of Clark Kent. But the only thing that actually disguises Clark Kent from Superman is a pair of glasses. That's pretty much his whole disguise. And Lois Lane, who knows both Superman and Clark Kent, She's always fooled by just a pair of glasses, uh, which is not very impressive considering her job is to be an investigative reporter. Now, you might have noticed in every Superman franchise, pretty much, there's a scene where Lois Lane, she catches a glimpse of of Kent Clark without the glasses on, because maybe they've dropped off or he's cleaning his lenses. And for one brief moment, Lois Lane thinks, hey, he, he looks like, could he be... Superman. She gets this tiny glimpse of this powerful identity that's been living in front of her in ordinary humanness. Uh, And in some small way, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus in front of his disciples is kind of like that, but on a massive scale. On top of the mountain, the glasses kind of come off. The earthly dullness of Jesus's full humanity is just kind of pulled back just for a brief moment and the disciples see his brilliant heavenly glory. A heavenly glory that's otherwise been veiled under ordinary humanness for the time they've known him. And as the transfiguration unfolds in this passage, we're going to see there's three clues for us, three puzzle pieces that kind of click together to form a bigger picture of who Jesus is. Did you notice the three puzzle pieces as we read through? Let's look at the three pieces together. Come with me. Uh, Let's see these pieces click together to build up a picture of who Jesus is. The first puzzle piece is in the Transfiguration is Jesus' physical appearance. Uh, Pick it up from verse 1 with me. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. So Jesus' physical appearance changes. His face seems to shine like the sun. He becomes white as light. That bright glowing appearance, it's, it's a sign of his heavenly glory. 
in the Psalms, God is described as being wrapped in light, like a garment. God is the one who kind of appears as fire. Uh, angels and other heavenly creatures, they appear as white lightning kind of things in uh, the New Testament and the Old. Uh, this bright, glowing image of Jesus, it's keying into all that kind of imagery. It's a sign of His heavenly glory, His heavenly identity and power. It's a little bit like when the glasses come off Clark Kent and it shows his true nature of Superman. That sort of dull everydayness of Clark Kent disappears and the supremacy and power of Superman is revealed. But, but notice when that happens, it's not that he suddenly becomes Superman. It's not that he suddenly gets these powers when his glasses come off. He's always Superman. He always has those powers. It's just that the glasses kind of mask it in ordinary humanness. It's kind of the same with Jesus here. This blindingly bright image of Jesus and his heavenly power, that's actually who he is all the time. All the time he's the second member of the Trinity. All the time he's God the Son. All the time he's the agent through who God the Father created the world. He's the one who sustains creation. All the time he is the essence of God, the most powerful being in the universe. Brilliant, blinding, unapproachable yet he has come to earth wrapped in human ordinariness and frailty. And for this brief moment on top of the mountaintop, that dullness of Jesus' earthly condition is kind of just pulled back just for a moment so that the true nature of Jesus as God's Son is actually seen by his disciples. That's the first identifying puzzle piece, his physical appearance in verse 1 and 2. Then hot on the heels of that one comes the next puzzle piece, the company that Jesus keeps. Have a look at verse 3. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So the disciples see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah, they are two of the biggest Old Testament figures. In the Jewish religion, they do not come bigger than these two guys, Moses and Elijah. Uh, Now, the company that you keep, it actually says something about you, doesn't it? So, if before church, uh, you came here tonight and you decided, I need a little bit of food, and so you went down to the the local uh, restaurant or whatever, uh, and you walk in and there I am having a coffee uh, with some friends just before church kicks off, and you walk over to say good day, and I introduce you to my friends. I say, hey, it's really great to see you, uni churcher. Uh, let me just introduce you to my friend Balti. And you say hi to my friend Balti. And uh, as you shake his hand and he says hello to you in a thick Jamaican accent, you think to yourself, I've seen this guy before. And then it dawns on you, it's Usain Bolt. And then I introduce you to my other friend that I'm sitting with. And I say, hey, this is my friend. He's just staying with me for a couple of weeks. He usually lives in America. And he puts down his Blackberry to shake your hand and you think, I've seen this guy before too and you slowly realise it's Barack Obama. And there's the three of us sitting there having a coffee, me, Barack and Bolte, just having a coffee, talking about the good old days and and you walk away from that and you're thinking to yourself, how does Mike know these guys? Who exactly is Mike? What did Mike do before becoming a pastor? Could he actually be Batman? 
Now, when you, when you get to the lecture theatre and church starts uh, in 60 minutes' time and I get up the front, you don't view me the same anymore, do you? I'm willing to bet there's something in your perception of me that has changed. There's something about the important company that I'm keeping that shows you something about me. It's kind of the same here with Jesus in the Transfiguration. Jesus, he's not meeting with some politician and some track star. This is Moses and Elijah. In Jewish religion, they do not come bigger than these two. God has worked through Moses and Elijah in just the most amazing ways. Uh, Through Moses, God rescued Israel uh, from slavery to Egypt. Uh, Think of the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the law. All God's work through Moses. And through Elijah, God showed his power to Israel and the world. Uh, Elijah was one of the greatest prophets. He's one of the only people in the Old Testament to never have actually died. Do you remember, Elijah was taken up into heaven in the whirlwind and here they are, come to talk with Jesus. And it's not just that Moses and Elijah are two of the biggest figures of the Jewish religion, they're also not living on earth. Moses died hundreds of years ago, Elijah was taken into heaven. They live in heaven in glory with God. And these towering figures of Judaism who currently live in heaven are standing there talking with Jesus, which shows you something of Jesus' importance, his supremeness, that he's not just talking with two of the greatest figures of their religion, but it also shows you his heavenliness, his otherworldliness. These two, Moses and Elijah, they haven't walked from the local village to catch up with Jesus. They're in heaven. So that's the second identifying mark of Jesus, the second puzzle piece, the company that he keeps. Now, as amazing as that is, uh, the next puzzle piece, I think, is the most amazing. And the next puzzle piece is the one that makes the disciples drop to the ground. The third puzzle piece is the words God actually speaks about Jesus. Look at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. So Peter sees the company that Jesus has, Moses and Elijah, and he says, you know, it's a good thing that we're here, I can put up three shelters, uh, one for each of you. A little bit hard to work out exactly why he says that, maybe he's just trying to be hospitable because that was a really big thing in their culture, maybe he wants them to hang around for a while, so he figures if he just makes it a bit more comfortable, maybe they'll do that. It's a bit hard to work out, I think, exactly what Peter is thinking. But while he's still yabbering, while he's still talking about earning his tent-making badge on the top of the mountain, the third puzzle piece comes... God speaks to the disciples about Jesus. He says this, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So what those first two puzzle pieces kind of show you in pictures, the third puzzle piece just flat out tells you, this is my son. This is God's son. What What God says, it leaves the disciples in absolutely no doubt about who Jesus is and his supremeness, his lordship, his glory. 
But actually, it's what God doesn't say, I think, that tells you the most about Jesus. There's something really striking that God doesn't say. God doesn't say anything about Moses and Elijah. And and that would be absolutely shocking to these disciples on top of the mountain because Moses and Elijah, they are the two greatest figures of their entire religion. And God says nothing about them, which tells you something about the size, the supremacy, the importance of Jesus, doesn't it? It'd be like if you're back down the restaurant or the coffee shop just before church and there I am with Barak and Usain and a barista comes to bring over some coffee for us and she sees who it is and in her shock she drops the coffee and she runs away and she gets her phone and she's saying things like I cannot believe who is in my coffee shop she runs over all excited and says can I can I please please get a selfie with you and then she gets her camera she runs up to us she puts her arms around me and takes a selfie of me completely ignores Barak, completely ignores Balti, and then she walks away and you can hear her say to the co-worker, I can't believe it, this is Mike Horgan. The fact that she says nothing at all about the other two guys tells you that for some reason I am more important in her mind. Now the fact that at the Transfiguration, God says about Jesus, this is my son, and says nothing about Moses and Elijah, the two greatest figures in the Jewish religion, tells you something of the supremacy of Jesus. See, when God speaks, he doesn't say, here are three prophets, listen to them. No, he singles out Jesus and he says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. I think it's at this point that actually we start to recognise this whole transfiguration event, it's actually for the sake of the disciples. It's for them to grasp who Jesus is. This is all about teaching them about Jesus. In fact, the word them, I think it's the most common word in the passage. Jesus leads them up the mountain. Jesus is transfigured before them. Elijah and Moses appeared before them. The cloud surrounds them. The voice says to them, this is my son. So you notice that God doesn't say, you are my son. With you I'm well pleased. He's not, God is not saying this to Jesus. God is saying this to them, the disciples. This is my son. This whole event is to teach them something about Jesus. It's all about giving them the puzzle pieces. Jesus' physical appearance, puzzle piece one. The company that Jesus is with, puzzle piece two. And God's words identifying who Jesus is, piece number three. All clicking together to make sure the disciples get Jesus' glory, his supremeness, that he's the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the King. I think once you see that, you can't put Jesus on the same shelf as any other religious leader or prophet or wise man or sage like Moses or Elijah. He's so far above them. To reject Jesus is not to reject a a, a wise teacher or a prophet. It's to reject the king of the universe. It's to reject God's own son, the one that God has singled out and said, listen to him. So I think our first application for us is actually the same application that God calls for the disciples to do. Listen to him. 
as king. This is my son, said God, listen to him. Rejecting Jesus, it is not the same as rejecting another wise man or prophet. He's God's king, he's God's son, and so God says, listen to him. Now, you guys have been preaching through Matthew's Gospel for a while, we're up to chapter 17, and so you've heard Jesus say things like this, love your enemies, don't judge, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather store up for yourself treasure in heaven. We've heard him say lots of things in 17 chapters. The question that I had for myself this week as I get to the transfiguration and as I hear God say, listen to him, the question I have for myself is, have I listened to him? We're up to Matthew chapter 17, we've had 17 chapters of Jesus. Can I list things in my life that have changed in 17 chapters of listening to Jesus? Can I list the things that have changed in my heart? What has changed in my actions in 17 chapters of listening to Jesus? Have I actually listened? Have I listened as he said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth? Have I listened as he has said, love your enemies? What about you? Are you listening to him as king? After 17 chapters of Jesus, are there ways in which you've grown? Are there ways in which you've become more godly? Can you list them? Are there ways in which your attitudes have changed after 17 chapters of listening to Jesus? Are there ways that you have wrestled hard against sin? After 17 chapters of Jesus, are you listening to him? At the Transfiguration, in this first half, there's three puzzle pieces that kind of click together to combine to show the picture of Jesus' unmatched supremacy and glory his physical appearance, the company he keeps, the word God speaks to show him as God's son, as the king, as the Christ, the Lord. Are we listening to that guy? That's only the first half of the passage, actually. In the first half, there's all these identifying puzzle pieces that show his glory, but then there's this change in the second half of the passage, from verse 9 to 13. The the puzzle pieces keep coming in the second half of the passage, but they start to build a very different picture of Jesus. This brilliant and glowing and bright figure of the first half of the passage starts to be identified as someone who will suffer and die in lowliness and shame. You can pick it up with me from verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain... Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So he says, don't talk about my supremacy until I've suffered. Don't talk about the glory that you've just seen on top of the mountain until I've died and risen again. Why? Why does Jesus say that? I think it's because if if they go around telling people about the glory of Jesus that they've just seen, then people are only going to find it even harder to accept that that glorious king is going to have to die and suffer a humiliating death. Because the image of the glory and supremacy of Jesus as king, it actually doesn't fit very well with the image of his suffering and his service and his shame. And and if you hear last week, we saw Peter really struggle with that. 
Last week we saw Peter, finally he was the first guy to identify Jesus as the King, as the Messiah. And as soon as Peter recognises who Jesus is, do you remember what Jesus started doing? Let me read it for you. From that time on, so from the time that Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day, be raised to life. Peter has real trouble fitting these two things together. He can't kind of click together the puzzle pieces of Jesus' glory and kingship. He can't get that to click together with the puzzle pieces of Jesus' suffering and sacrifice. He can't hold together the crown of glory with the crown of thorns and shame. And we saw Peter... Uh, say to Jesus, no way, that is never going to happen to you. You are never going to die and be arrested and suffer. You're the Christ. And Jesus thoroughly rebuked him. Peter's having trouble holding this identity together. Jesus as king and Jesus as the one who will suffer and sacrifice. But it's, it's that second identity which keeps coming up again and again in the second part of this passage as they're walking down the mountain. As they walk down the mountain, the disciples ask Jesus a question and it gives Jesus a chance to talk more about the suffering that he's going to do. Did you notice the question? It's there in verse 10. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? That's a a fair question because the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi, saying that before the glorious king comes, Elijah will come first. Before the glorious king and Messiah comes, Elijah will return and prepare the way. And so the Old Testament ends by saying that. And so these disciples, they're coming down the mountain and they're thinking, hang on a minute, we've just seen Jesus, we've just seen his glory, he's the Christ but wasn't Elijah supposed to come before all this happens? Because that's what the prophets had said. And Jesus uses that question to talk more about his suffering part of the identity. Look at his response in verse 11. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah's already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Elijah had come first. He's already come to prepare for the coming of this glorious king. It's just that Israel didn't recognize him when he did come. Elijah was John the Baptist and they arrested John the Baptist and they brutally executed him. And we saw that a few weeks ago. So John the Baptist or Elijah has come, he has set the stage for the coming of this glorious great king and then he's arrested and killed and we've just seen the glorious great king show himself on the mountaintop and then walk down saying, yeah, you know that suffering of John the Baptist? That's what's going to happen to me. And that's exactly what does happen. This glorious figure of the transfiguration suffers at the hands of frail human sinners This brilliant and glowing figure on top of the mountaintop is mocked and spat on by people. The one that Moses and Elijah know by name is ridiculed and beaten. The one of whom God just said, this is my son, 
listen to him, with him I'm well pleased, is crucified and killed. The one who wears the crown of glory also places upon his head the crown of thorns and suffering and shame. All the identifying marks in this passage, they're showing you these two sides of who Jesus is. His glory, his humility, his supremacy, his suffering, sacrificial service, his kingship and amazingly, his cross and crucifixion. And amazingly, it's those two sides of who Jesus is. It's actually hinted at in the words that God speaks on the mountain. Now, you and I tend to not notice this as much as the disciples would have because, you know, I don't know my Old Testament as well as what they did. But when God says these words, this is my son with whom I am pleased, God's actually quoting two different Old Testament passages. One about the glory of the coming king and one about a strange suffering servant who will come to suffer and save God's people. This is my son, that comes from Psalm 2, a psalm about God's king who comes with glory and power. It's about the crown of glory. But, with him I'm well pleased, is an allusion to Isaiah 42, a passage that talks about this mysterious suffering servant figure who will come and suffer on behalf of God's people to save them. It's about the crown of thorns. Now, every Jewish person knew about Psalm 2, the great king with glory and power, and every Jewish person knew about Isaiah 42 and the suffering lowly servant who'd be crushed by God to save Israel. But nobody ever thought they could possibly refer to the same person. And that's why Peter really struggled the other week. He's struggling, holding together the idea of Jesus as God's great king, yet the one who suffers and is crushed for the salvation of people. But they're the two aspects of Jesus' identity that the transfiguration keeps trying to show us. All the identifying marks in this passage, they're showing you something of who Jesus is. His glory, his humility, his supremacy, his suffering service, his kingship and his cross. And we're supposed to actually respond to both of those sides of who Jesus is. Which means the application for us tonight, it's not just listen to him as king, it's also lean on him as saviour. Jesus hasn't just come to give you authoritative teaching to listen to, he's also come to be a suffering sacrifice to run to. Have you done that? If you haven't, my question to you is kind of the same as my question to all the Christians earlier, and that is, in 17 chapters of Jesus, have you lent on him yet for salvation? If you're not yet a Christian, Jesus is not simply someone to study and listen to. He's a saviour. He died to save you. He paid the price for your sin to bring you to God. You actually don't just need teaching, you need saving which means we're not to just listen to Jesus as King, but lean on Him as Saviour. Have you done that? If you have and you're already a Christian, well, thank God that Jesus is both Supreme King and humble Saviour. Because the first question we asked ourselves tonight was, are you listening to Him as King? And if you're a Christian in many ways, I totally expect you to say yes to that question. Yes, I have been listening to him as king, I am obeying him. But 
no one in this room is even close to perfectly doing that. And so in many ways, for all of us, the answer to that question is going to be no. Uh, There are ways in my life where I am not listening to him as king. There are ways in my life where I'm not obeying, where I am rejecting him. And so thank God that Jesus is not just supreme king of the transfiguration. He's also the suffering saviour of the cross. Thank God that Jesus doesn't just wear the crown of glory, but also a crown of thorns. Or, Or to put that in Bible language, Jesus is not just Lord, he's also saviour. Jesus Christ is both Lord and Saviour. He wears the crown of glory as Lord and he willingly places upon his head the crown of thorns as Saviour. And he does that willingly for all his people, like us, who continue to refuse to listen to him as King. Which means Jesus is absolutely everything that you need. He's the King to listen to and he's the Saviour to lean on. Thanks be to God for who Jesus is. Amen.